Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary.org Hardcore Podcast coming your way. Episode 150. We're doing Sharir King Kamali Mobsters. Boy, Steve Smee here. And in fact, the mobster joining me from the UK Bastards of Bells. Bastards of Iron. Thing. He's wearing a shirt that says Bastards of Iron. That's right. I've got a hoodie, a shirt, and a Which no one will, no one one, will ever one see it. The competition. They're a kind of hardcore brand you should check them out on instagram and see what they're like they're kind of crazy all right yeah check that out guys so guys we're going to talk about king kamali here he's a iranian american former pro bodybuilder hit and run situation he had a 12-year career and then he just poof retired so we're going to talk about him we're going to talk about his steroid use he has an interesting nutrition and diet which i'm going to get into because I was kind of fascinated by it. And then Mobster has some background stories on him. And Mobster is going to talk about his training. Because Mobster is our training guru. But first, you know, let's talk a little bit about his childhood. He's still alive. He's actually still alive doing, doing these Mobster. Um, lately, we've talked about guys that have, like, died young. Well, he's still, he's still going. He's still, yeah. He seems to be going good. But, of course, that can change at any time. But he seems to you know, be, be, be going, going well. Um, he's really well known online for doing transformations. We'll get kind of get into that. He was born and raised in Iran, 1972. Uh, he loved sports, led him to bodybuilding. He had rapid results in weight, weight training from a young age. So he has a genetics where he was able to pick it up really quickly. He got a degree in exercise physiology. Then he began his bodybuilding career. In his early 20s, he started to travel competing in bodybuilding shows across the world from 1994 at the age of 22 until 2006. At his peak, 5'10", 235 pounds, 19-inch arms, 50-inch chest, and 36-inch waist. So, Mobster, you want to talk a little bit about uh, his childhood a little bit before I get into his competition results? Yeah, so he's addressed this. I think he says it's one of those things with his parents they were very strong on the idea that you do education and you get a good career. So his being with bodybuilding, of course, was kind of going against that. So he had to get A grades, get the top grades he could at school. And obviously, as you see, as Steve just says, qualified with a degree at your college university. The other thing he had was he, he came over to the US around the same time that the US were going to Iran and the Shah had just left, et cetera. And it was all kind of kicking off in, in, in that neck of the woods. So you can imagine as a young lad, you know, 10, 12, 13 years of age, has gone to school and all the young American kids are right, you're Iranian, so you're a terrorist. And this, this was a big deal, as you can imagine, oh Christ, can you imagine going to school, Steve, when you're the guy that's like bombing people and all that? Of course, in reality, you're not, but we're talking about kids here. So it was a huge, huge motivator for him to kind of turn that around 
and rather become a, a, a bullied kid and, and get his ass kicked and whatever else, fortunately with his genetics as well, he, he says, uh, and I quote, he says, I, I made, uh, took a year and I made a directed specific attempt to grow, to become bigger, to become more muscular, but specifically in terms of popularity, he went out of his way to kick ass in all the popular sports, whether that's pro ball, whether that's baseball, whether that's basketball, he went out of his way. So not only was he knuckling down for his parents' sake in terms of his education, but he was kicking ass on the pitch, in the gym, et cetera, et cetera. And he went from the terrorist one year, so to speak, to the next year, the guy with like, you know, the T-shirts, the, 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 the jumpers and all that kind of stuff that they have in American schools. And, you know, popular with the fellas, therefore popular with the girls. And he kind of turned it around by essentially becoming a really, really good athlete. But obviously, and Steve and I have touched on this before, we talk about sometimes, in fact, we don't talk about it enough, Steve, in terms of what motivates people. Because when you're dealing with clients, when I'm dealing with clients, I like to find out what makes them tick. So when it comes to the gym stuff, I can, the magic for me is motivating them to transform, to be, get stronger, to lift that weight that feels heavy. And here's a guy that's kind of like, here's his motivation. He, he wants to become popular. He wants to kick ass. He, he wants to get past all the bullshit he's had in his first year in, in an American school. And look at the transformation we're talking about. We're talking about a fellow that ended up on a, a world-class athlete on a, on a, on the big stage, on the Olympia stage, on, on, on this high ranking competition and stuff. So he had the genetics. But here's where the drive came from. It started at school. It came from his parents pushing him hard and all that kind of stuff. And one quick thing he talks about, he, he says there was this idea. He said, if I'd have got into trouble at school, he says the way that they would deal with it is they'd bring your parents up. They'd have you in your office and they would bring your parents up. He says, and I know what my dad's like. He says, providing I did well, he said, my dad would have, if they'd have rang me and said, oh, young King, King Kamal is in trouble and we need to sort it out. And his dad would have said, what's his grades? And if his grades were good, he didn't care. So long as you were successful, so long as you were driven, that's all that mattered. And I said, you've gone from the people that wanted to become a doctor or a scientist, something that, you know, is, is kind of respected. No, it took them a long time. But when he was able to prove that he'd become a successful bodybuilder, when, when he took them to a competition and people were coming up to him, asking for autographs, asking for photographs, and when they could see him on stage with his other athletes, they kind of got it. They kind of understood it. So that was another sort of success and a driver. You've proven to your parents, proven to your buddies at school. We've all got these little stories about ourselves, and including our listeners and, and members of the forum about what drives you. And this is sometimes, for me, it's the most important thing. If you, if you understand yourself and you know what drives you and know what's going to get you there, then a coach like myself or Steve, we, we can tune into that we can find out what gets you going and we say right this is we're going to try and help this guy but we'll help them with the driver we'll help them with the motivation because we understand them this is how you understand king this you say this is where you come from now i think he just enjoys himself steve he enjoys the chat he enjoys the bullshit enjoyed being on stage when you see him on video talking now he's just enjoying life and he just loves what he does back to you his competition started NPC College Nash, Collegiate Nationals, 1994 at the age of 22. He won that. Two years later, the NPCs from 96 to 99, four years span, he got 10th, 7th, 3rd, and then 1st. So he improved each year little by little. It took him four years to go from being in 10th place to 1st place. That's patience. 
Like who does that anymore? Who's patient like that anymore? Nowadays, nobody, if you saw someone, you're going to be in the 10 places here and it's going to take you four years to get first place. They would quit. Nobody only wants to wait four years. So four years is a long time. We, we want everything overnight. So 2001, fourth place at Arnold Classic and 10th place at Mr. Olympia. That was probably his best year um, around then. And then next year, he got seventh place at Mr. Olympia, which is still great. Anytime you place even top 20 in Mr. Olympia, you're still top 20 in the world. So In the world, yeah. Uh, millions of bodybuilders, you're, you are up there. You're in that elite, elite group. Fifth place at Ironman Pro in 2005. That was his best showing later in his career. He retired the next year. So, you know, we're going to kind of get into Mobster, get into his training and then get into his nutrition. But touch a little bit on 12 years of training from 22. He only trained until he was, you know, 34. And then he stopped. What do you think about that one? Because you're in your 50s and... Can you imagine just competing for 12 years and just stopping? Tell us your thoughts on that and then get into his training. Okay, I, I think I probably did compete for that kind of lip at home, and, and I haven't competed for a couple of years. So it's kind of, for what I do, my niche, my, my grip stuff, that's probably kind of a sort of uh, thing for me. I think it's an age thing. Uh, I mean, and again, because we're talking about here, uh, what we're saying here in terms of time scale, you would have been... Uh, 31 when he did his career best at the Ironman of fifth place. It's, it's kind of hard to say. I don't know why he quit. Probably because maybe he's one of those guys that's driven just wants to win and he's not winning competition. He's not winning the Olympia. He's not winning the Arnold. He's placing fifth at the Ironman. It's, these are decent places. As I said, you're, people don't get this sometimes. You are an elite bodybuilder. You are the, the fraction of 1% in terms of your genetics, being on the stage at the Olympia, even the 20th place guy, you just said. So maybe it's the hunger in him to win that's not going to be satisfied, and maybe that's where he draws a line. I, I got good at what I did in two to three years. And I even, in my arrogance and my confidence to, to, to kick ass, I would look at the athletes around me, and if there was a group of eight or ten athletes, I would know who was going to win. Obviously, I thought it would be me. Even if I was second or third, I still thought it would be me. And then you've got the guy that's going to be second or third, the guy that's going to trouble me, and then everybody else. And my attitude was, I don't know why they're here. They pay their entry fees. They're putting some money towards a trophy. That's it. They're here to get records. I'm here to kick ass. And maybe that what was King Things was, and he wanted to do that. And he realized as good as he was, as popular as he was, as successful as he was, he wasn't going to win. And maybe that's what's kind of stopped it. You can only... What, what would I want to keep on competing for 10 years and know I was never going to win? No. In terms of his training, Steve, it's kind of unusual. And I can only think of one British bodybuilder that's kind of done this kind of thing, a fellow called Johnny Fuller, who was reputed to do the same kind of style of training. Now, for you guys and myself included, I can tell you the science behind the, the whole low reps for power, medium reps is what builds muscle, and high reps is what builds endurance. Right? And there's a lot of science. Arthur Jones has addressed it, this whole sort of how muscles work and how the muscle fiber types work and everything. And then you get this kind of training. Johnny Fuller did it. King Kamali did it. We're talking about, Steve, 20 to 25 sets with 20 to 30 reps, sometimes as high as 40. 
that <laughs> I don't know, man. That, if you haven't got a foundation, this stuff was good. I could do it, you could do it, and we would have the worst pump or the nicest pump. I don't know what way you're going to look at it, but could we do this for 20 or 25 sets? I don't know, man. I don't know. And I can even, I would want to know the weights that he's doing, which I can't really answer, but. I can only imagine that the the, the the maybe his muscle fiber type from the athletic stuff that he was doing at school is made up in a certain way. But he ended up as a real big muscular guy. He's not an ectomorph. He's kind of endomeso, if anything, because he's a little bit, holds a little bit of fat now. He's still got a big muscular frame. Whereas this kind of volume stuff would suit someone who, who sprints. It would suit someone who does endurance running. It wouldn't, sorry, not sprints, the middle distance and long distance kind of running stuff. But then you look at, for example, Dave Palumbo. Dave Palumbo was doing middle distance, like 10,000 metres, 5,000 metres when he was competing. And he ended up with 300 pounds. So this must be just a real genetic thing in terms of being able to grow on this level of volume with this high number of sets and reps and still being 250 pounds. Dave Palumbo, 300 pounds. Johnny Fuller. I'm going to say Johnny was probably on the short side, but when you saw him, he was thick. Thick, thick muscles. So for you and I, and the vast, I would say 99% of our listeners, this kind of stuff would burn you the fuck out. You would be exhausted. You couldn't keep it up. It, it, the only way you're going to do stuff like this is real, real lightweights. If you could do it moderate heavyweights, you are a freak upon freaks. And maybe, just maybe, it's one of those things where he likes how he feels when he trains like this. There was one more little thing which was actually referenced to this in terms of his cardio and stuff like that. And I'm actually thinking sometimes people have got this idea that if you do this high reps, you burn fat. Not really. Not If you're not predisposed for it, you can't burn your way through lifting weights for 30 reps into condition. You're not going to lose fat. You're not burning enough calories. And yet you're in the gym for a long time and you are putting a lot of work in. Right. So he talks about fasted cardio, doing stuff early in the morning, which is as we know, Steve, probably one of the best ways to lose weight in terms of whether you should or you shouldn't, fasted or not fasted, uh, talks about it and says that he does it almost every day. Steve links to a video in an article which we can link to in, in, in the follow-up for this stuff. 15 minutes warming up, perfectly normal stuff here, and, and then talking about how you get into the fat-burning zone and stuff like that. Again, there's lots of uh, videos, lots of interviews with him. Well worth looking up, guys, if you want to take it from this fellow again. We're still talking about a top 10 athlete. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can't say, honestly, I know of a few bodybuilders that have trained like this, but it is literally a handful. When I'm talking about my interest with, with lifting has been 40 plus years. And I can, maybe uh, Serge Nubray, who competed with Arnold, was reputed to be one of those guys that you'd go in and be ended up 200, 300 reps total on bench press alone, that you'd be in the gym with him for four hours and it would be moderate weights. And most guys found it was just not something that suited them at all. I know of a bunch of uh, trained by JP, Jean-Paul, who talks about training. And his is all about overloading. He's got a load of followers, all about progressive resistance. Very few people train this way. It's extremely rare. As I'm saying, I can think of off the top of my head, and the ones I've mentioned, four, five of the top two, 300 bodybuilders of all time that have ever trained this way. Almost no one else does. Arnold would be a moderate bodybuilder with a, a medium high volume. I'm, in terms of my training, very, very low volume. It's all of my stuff online. But then I'm more of a strength athlete. It's unusual. 
could you train like this, Steve? What would, how would you think you would feel if you trained this way? I mean, it'd be tough to train this way long term. I could probably get away with it for a short amount of time. Yeah, I mean, it would probably, I'd probably get injured so much, you know, from this. I'm sure nowadays he wouldn't be able to train like this. That might, he probably, I mean, these these guys have to train hard. I mean, they have to, to keep up. He was chasing some great bodybuilders and he was, you know, trying to, trying to get up there in Mr. Olympia. He had a dream, so. On a rare occasion, I, 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 it does work for me in that particular way. Steve will know this again as well. And again, this is typical stuff. Everybody's got a variation of genetics or whatever else. You'll say, uh, 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 and I met, I've addressed it already with the, the lower power, the medium muscle, the higher endurance. What you will sometimes see in training is uh, uh, medium high reps on legs, for example, calves and forearms sometimes as well. And I've done that stuff. I've done the 20 and 25 reps for shits and giggles. And it's normally one of those, we want to see if you're going to puke up things. Sometimes we've done those death sets. I don't know if you have a death set at the end of a workout. And I can think of a couple of times where we would put, we'd train someone on legs. They're doing squats. They're doing whatever else. And then just because it amused us as a group of guys, when we were doing a strongman training back in Gloucester a few years ago, we just for a laugh, and I say as a laugh because you get us some great videos, which I wish we'd taken more of at the time. We, we would put on, your body weight or a little bit over your body weight on the leg press. And then you had to do a set of a hundred reps as much as possible in one hit. But this was more about seeing you wobble around the room like a baby or not be able to stand up for five minutes or whatever else. Really, it's more of a very, it's just a challenge. It's not something you did on a regular basis. So the guys that are adapt to this on a regular basis and do well on it, and King did do well on it, it is, it's, it's unusual. Let's just put it that way. I mean, one of the things I've said in training, Steve, when guys ask about it, I said, there's no great secrets. There's no special particular combination of sets and reps that works because our bodies will adapt. You know that with fasting. You know that when it comes to diet. You know, and I've had, we've had these online debates when we talk about how the body, specifically the human race, can adapt to certain situations. The same applies to training as it does to diet. If we're hungry, our body withholds certain things that, and it doesn't let that go because we're in starvation mode. You're training, you go, okay, if I tried this training right now, when I'm used to a low volume, I would be on my ass. However, adaptability, it would take me, and I wouldn't want to do it, but it would take me probably three to six months to kind of get used to this. It would be interesting to see what the transformation would be like, but I don't fucking want to, so I won't. <laughs> but King, King did well. Look at Guys, check him out, look him up online. See the physique that he brought the stage. I think, if anything, looking at him, which we'll get into the nutrition now, Steve, he was probably carb sensitive in terms of whether he held water, whether he looked flat, wherever he looked full, et cetera, et cetera, because he had a good shape to his physique, but he wasn't always kind of crazy looking, and maybe that's what also held him back. What do you think about his nutrition? What's interesting about Kamali is fruit. Um, even when he was competing, he, he would consume fruit now he consumes fruit you go on his instagram he consumes fruit in every meal and there's reasons for that fruits are full of antioxidants they're full of water he they can help your digestion especially things like papaya or pineapple you can eat them with meals that help your digestion he's obsessed with digestion if you notice as well he's always taken digestive enzymes this is probably something he had to do because when he was bodybuilding and he was eating eight meals a day and eating all that food to bodybuild to feed his, his body, 
he was running into stomach issues. And that's what happens in bodybuilding. Bodybuilders have horrible gut health for that reason. So he started noticing, hey, taking these digestive enzymes helped me because it helps break down that food in the gut rather than that food sitting there and then bacteria going after that food and then you getting a, a tummy ache. So he started noticing that. But at the end of the day, guys, you should not you need a digestive enzyme. As a normal Joe, you should not be taking these digestive enzymes. You should be eating more single whole foods that are because those are going to be easier to digest. If you're eating a sub with 20 different ingredients, the bread alone has probably like 30 ingredients in a sub. So if you're eating that and you complain about a tummy ache, you know, that's why, because your body cannot break down all those things at the same time. Your body can only send out a certain amount of enzymes. And sometimes your body doesn't have the capability of sending out those enzymes like lactase, for example. As you age, your body is unable to produce that enzyme to break down dairy sugar, sugar from dairy products. So you'll notice that as you age, you're not going to be able to digest dairy. So he noticed that. So he's obsessed with water, fruit, digestive enzymes. That's one of the things that's really interesting about his nutrition. You want to chime in on that, um, officer? I'm just going to come in with something. I actually, I'm just thinking as I was looking at the diet stuff while you were talking there, Steve, I had a, a, a what I would call a Persian client. I can't remember if he was Iraqi or Iranian way, way back in the day. And the food as such is kind of healthy, although there can quite often be a lot of oils. And I'm talking about the typical Iranian Iraqi diet. There can be a lot of oils in there. And, and, it, and, and one of the issues, funny enough, it, even though the Mediterranean diet is incredibly healthy by comparison, and Steve's talked about this a bunch of times, the, the certain Japanese islands have a fantastic diet with, with the fish that they eat and so on and so forth. And I think we've addressed this when we said, uh, you know, look at the populations of the world that are the oldest and healthiest. How do they eat? Kind of sparingly, kind of hungry all the time, but very, very healthy food. The Persian, one of the Persian issues, and I'm talking about Iran, Iraq, all of that kind of area, is social eating. Now, with the Mediterranean diet, sitting around a table, but it's only covered with healthy food, the idea that you sit down and you pick and you talk and you chill and you're with like three generations of family, it's not so bad. One of the, the, the fellow that I was training back in the day, one of the issues was I knew that he was eating junk food during the day as your job in the city because I knew where he worked, I knew his habits, and, I, and I, I'd worked there myself, I knew what was available. But I also said to him, you're eating crap in the daytime and then you come home and you're having an Iranian meal, which is a huge bowl on the table with some kind of meat in it, lamb, mince, whatever, but lots of oils, lots of sauces. And, and, and then there'll be other thing on the table and you're dipping in with breads and stuff. Now, something Steve's talked about when it comes to nutrition. And I'd imagine, again, King's going to have had this issue as a young man, uh, just went from school and, and the social aspect of school and, of course, American society in general. And again, this is what Steve's addressed, is this thing of going out and having food with a ton of sauces, it starts off oh, with some chicken breast and there's some great vegetables. And then it's layered down with potatoes, it's layered down with sauces, it's layered down with a million ingredients, like Steve just said, even just a Subway. Uh, I, I've had really kind of simple meals. And then if you look at the, you look on the thing on the back and it's half a page of ingredients, then you think, what the fuck? Just a flour alone has got three ingredients in. So it's stuff like that. The, the American diet now, well, that's been the majority of our listeners, when you're going out in the evening, guys, very few of you are cooking at home. Steve's just done a podcast on, on healthy meals, et cetera. It's real, real difficult. Now, when you look at what King's eating and what he wants you to eat and what he's got his clients eating, guys, it's kind of boring. 
It's what works every single time, whether it's fresh fruit, whether it's fresh vegetables, whether it's this kind of fish, whether it's that kind of rice, whether it's oatmeal, whether it's chicken. Is it interesting? Is it exciting? It can be if you spice it up a little bit. But every single person that we talk about that's been successful and has worked out what's worked for them, you'll see this food come up again and again and again, the only thing that might vary, and I'm talking about way, way back in the day, Steve, was when some of the guys were taking 20 eggs, when some of the guys were doing four pounds of meat a day. You don't really need to eat like that unless you're an absolute huge giant. Some of the strength athletes that I'm familiar with, 27, 28 stone up, it's 400 pounds. They're working with nutritionists now. And quite often they're surprised that the calorific intake's gone higher than what they're used to but what they're actually doing is eating cleaner. So they're eating like bodybuilders, they're eating more frequently, they're eating healthier food, but they're eating more food. And they can do that because their gut health's good. And they can do that because this is clean food that they're eating. It's not rocket science, but it can feel like that. And the reason for that sometimes, when we're going to get to the Instagram a little tiny bit with, with King, where what sells, what gains traction is the idea that somebody's got a secret and they want to sell it to you for five bucks and the secret is this special fruit that's like got miracle. No, 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 no. It's dead boring. It's dead boring. But yeah, I mean, we've got a, a great uh, a log on our forum, on Evo forum right now from, from an Instagram model. And you can see what she does with a diet and the stuff's good. It's healthy. So there's ways of spicing things up. There's ways of cooking it. And again, Steve's just done that so we can get into that. In terms of, uh, I'll, I'll mention the um, social media because uh, we've addressed this on a bunch of recent podcasts, King doesn't actually have that followers. I mean, I wouldn't mind 90,000, but 90,000 followers, when we talk about all the other people that we've been doing in these hardcore podcasts, most of them are like half a million or 200, 300,000, and the kind of levels where you can get some serious business from them. I don't think King needs it because he's got a bunch of people that he's worked with that are incredibly successful. He's very good with the transformations. I suspect he probably gets a lot of approaches through the gym and through reputation, perhaps through a website. So his social media thing is not as big as it could be. And yet he does well. So yeah, guys, there's a way of proving to you that social media, which is very much a thing of the now, of the noughties, and of the, of the 2010 onwards, especially, where we talk about how you make business and how you make money and how many followers you need to be successful with and all this kind of thing. And then you've got King Kamali. King Kamali, go onto his Instagram, find his 90,000 followers, 89,800 or something like that, I think the last time I looked. And, and, and every other picture is a client that he's worked with that he's brought success to. And I think it's probably because he's, he's quite motivational, Steve, uh, outspoken, I guess he's, he, he exemplifies the, the, the athlete as, as a leader, uh, as, a, as a person you listen to. Uh, when you do watch him on video, there's RX Muscles got a bunch of interviews with him as well as others. He's not afraid to speak. He's, he's, uh, uh, that's something actually, and I want to change the subject here slightly, Steve, which we, which we talked about in a pre-show. Uh, how he, his rivalry with uh, Craig Titus and specifically with the idea of smack talk and feuds as a drive. If you don't mind me addressing that as well, Steve. Yeah, so yeah, here we go. Yeah, and then we'll get into the steroid talk. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So here we go, guys. So coming maybe from the whole American professional wrestling stuff, where the idea that you built up a Saturday night audience by standing there and announcing to the world on a microphone with a TV camera in front of you, you're going to kick this guy's ass and he needs to be here on Saturday night 
and I'm going to put the smack down on him. So bodybuilders are not, they're not stupid. <laughs> People might think they are, but they're not. What we've seen recently, for example, with Blessing and Nick Walker was this whole quote-unquote rivalry, more on Blessing's side than, than Nick's side. And Blessing, speaking in interviews, says quite simply, I wanted to make the contest interesting. I wanted to drive the audience. I wanted to bring something different. I wanted to get people's juices moving. And I knew that if I did this for this competition, people, more people are going to watch, more people are going to hook up on a pay-per-view, more people are going to buy tickets to the show. Now, back in the day, King had a huge rivalry, made more so by all the bodybuilding magazines that were printed at the time. And so you, every interview, every article on King would, and for that matter, sometimes Craig as well, would have this whole, what's this about you and Craig? What's the, what's the going on? And King tells some great silly little stories about, for example, him or buddies of his sitting down at the front row of competitions. And <laughs> quite horrendous, really, Steve. <laughs> he says, Craig would be up on stage posing and he'd have his buddies go, old, fat, old, and all this kind of stuff. And every time this would happen, Craig had a kind of temper where he'd be staring at these guys in the audience as they're calling out his insults. And instead of ignoring them, he'd be paying attention to them. So it was distracting him. So not only have you got this, uh, the one person that might kick your ass or take some money off of you for your place is getting annoyed because your buddies are winding him up, so to speak. But you've also got this stuff getting you both into the magazines. Now, whether Craig wanted to admit it at the time, and there's a whole story about Craig Titus and the crazy stuff, which, cause, guys, you can check it out, is just an absolute fucking lunatic, still in jail, and all the kind of stuff that come with that. But you've got this whole thing of it got traction. It, if, if social media had been a big deal at that time, this shit would have blown the internet up as far as bodybuilding is concerned. But as it was, it got maybe guys that wouldn't have otherwise been featured in the magazines, more articles, more interviews, more traction. I'm going to tell you now, and I suspect it got more sponsorship, that judges would have looked at them differently when they come on the stage. So just that one thing alone drove the both of them to probably be better bodybuilders, but at the same time to make them better in terms of contest places, more people going to watch the competition, more people wanted to read about these guys after the competition. And... When you, when you listen to him talk now, he talks about partying at clubs and stuff that they did and so on and so forth. So he knows how to make an interview interesting. He knows what hooks, what's going to give. If he was just, a, I, I eat oatmeal and I do 10 sets of five reps, he wouldn't have got the, the publicity that he would have got. Now, this is not a top, he's not number one, he's not number two, he's not number three. But he's getting that interest, he's getting that publicity, he's driving trade, he's doing well for his sponsors. This is how he done it. And he still does this now when he doesn't need to. So he's definitely an outspoken guy. And let's be honest, it made life interesting. Let's get in, let's get into the steroids, Steve. So we we touched on earlier about why he could and uh Mobster brought up the reasons outside of steroid use. He's done some videos and some of the things that he said are that one of the reasons he you know, that he was stupid. He did a lot of idiotic things. He mm. abused. He did what he called was mega cycles. And he realized once he started having a family that, you know, he needed to make a change. And he admits that he did whatever it took to rise. And when he was top 10 at Mr. Olympia, 
you can imagine that he was abusing the crap out of, out of, out of the steroids. So, and this is why he decided to come off and ease up on the steroid use. And once that happened, he had to ease off on his comp competing as well. Cause you're not going to be able to compete at Mr. Olympia unless you're doing these, these abusive mega cycles yeah. in the first place. Yeah. So he talked about that and he admitted he became depressed when he came off steroids. He, it sucked. I mean, it, because what happens is guys, when you, when you're running that much and then you come down and you're running only, they say you're running two or three grams a week and then you only run 500 milligrams a week, half a gram or less your results in the gym are going to change. Your strength is going to go down. Just running trend at 200 milligrams a week for eight weeks and then stopping the trend, your strength is going to tank. Can you imagine running two or three grams of steroids, HGH, insulin, all this other stuff that he was running and then having to back off just to half a gram a week? His strength went down. His pumps were not the same in the gym. His aggression came down. His libido would have came down. A lot of things are going to happen and you're just going to go from feeling like the king and having that image. You see some old pictures that he posts on his Instagram of him getting out of cars and people coming up to him and wanting autographs and all this stuff to just being, you know, a big former pro bodybuilder. So he went through that depression and it's not just the physical nature of, of coming off of steroids. It's also the mental nature of coming off stairs. And those of you who use steroids and cycle them off and on know exactly what I'm talking about. So you have to overcome that. So that was what he struggled with. But at the end of the day, his family came first. It's very, very important in his culture that that family comes first. He knew his daughter, he wanted to grow up and watch his daughter graduate and all that good stuff. So mobster chime in a little bit on that. I'm just going to we'll jump in real, real quick. Stuff. And you yeah. touched on it already. Uh, one thing I said earlier on, so point one is no matter how much steroids he said, it wasn't going to be Mr. Olympia. Maybe that was where, as I mentioned earlier, the realization comes in. I can double up and I can double up and I can double up, but I'm not going to win. So what's the point? I'm doing okay. I'm so excited. I've got some money. My house is sorted. I've got a family. Uh, I, no point in me doubling up and ruining my health and, and, and still not winning the Mr. Olympia. Number one, right? so then number two, which I've addressed kind of in the past, right? Some of you guys, even at moderately low doses, and I'm speaking specifically of the fellas that might need to go on CRT or I've, what I've described online as a low affinity for how they respond to testosterone. When you give these guys testosterone, Steve, they feel good. They feel and I'll, to, to, to put more manly, more driven, more focused. We've had guys talk about this. Um We've talked, we've, there's, there's an element of a feel good factor to testosterone, even at moderate levels, uh, that in terms of your psychology and your outlook. For example, whether you're a salesman, whether you're a CEO, or something like this. And the way that you're driven as a younger man is partly down to a multitude of factors, but some of that has included your testosterone levels. It just is. Uh, so, you know, whether you're more aggressive, it, you can even have low tests and still be aggressive, but getting less down to your affinity, how you respond. Equally, and we know this, Steve, which would be kind of point number three, we've had guys that come on the forum and they talk about anxiety issues. And if there's a, if there's a drug that's going to make you more anxious, and you've mentioned it just now, it's trend, right? So we know that guys on high doses especially, and we're going to include King here, 
the difference between how he felt on a high level of testosterone and how he felt when he moderated his doses down to TRT levels was for him a big deal. And he talks about how he felt. It's a big deal for a lot of guys. Some guys psychologically need, and again, it's something that's come up on the forum funny enough just this week. They need to have this much. I have to take this amount of drugs. Otherwise, I'm not going to be successful. I have to have this amount of drugs or I'm not going to get my pro card. And of course, the reality is it's all down to how you respond. It's all down to your genetics. It's all down to your predisposition. If And we've talked about this before, Steve. If you're a chilled out guy off gear, you're going to be a chilled out guy, but slightly more driven and certainly better in terms of your nutritional and training response. And you don't become a different person. But for some, and it's, again, it's, I'm talking about the majority when I say that, for some people, how you are on versus how you are off. Uh, Steve talks about a soft landing when it comes to PCT. And, and, and he and I, I think, agree. We say, listen, on steroids, you feel a certain way. And that's just if you're me or Steve or, or whoever. You will notice how you feel, which is good because you need to be aware that you feel a little bit different, a little bit less energetic, a little bit more lethargic, etc. But because you're aware of those things, you can do other stuff. You can change your tra training because you're not going to be doing 600-pound squats. Oh, boo-hoo-hoo, you're only going to be doing 525. So you can up the reps with 525. You can go off and do something else for a little while until it's time to go back on cycle. So you can be with the family more. You can, you can do other kinds of training. You can do some more trail walking. You can do other things because otherwise it can be a bit of a head fuck of how you felt on versus how you felt off. So doing other stuff is a distraction. And equally, it doesn't play with your mind because you're not trying to get under 600 pounds on the squat or whatever. So th there are issues for some guys. And again, with the levels that we're going to discuss that King was on and trying to win the Mr. Olympia or certainly top three, whatever, and realising that you're not, that's going to play on your mind. I don't care how strong you are. Coming, coming off of multiple grams, which we're going to get into in a few seconds, multiple grams of gear down to TRT levels. In other words, the most 300 milligrams. How that, it's, it's, a, it's not even an attempt, Steve. It's less than an attempt of what we think he was on at the time. So damn right you're going to feel different. Damn right you're going to see the world differently and whatever else. You will get over it. You will adapt. But you're not going to be a happy bunny. You're not going to be uh, as full of yourself, shall we say, as you would have been on this stuff. But I suspect, uh, as Steve says, the family thing was a great anchor for him mentally. And, of course, he's not unintelligent. He's got a degree in, in sports stuff. He would know that there's going to be a time when he won't feel as shitty so he can be focused on the time to come and not focus on how the fuck I feel right the fuck now. Because right the fuck now is shit. But guys, I talk about this a lot. We, we, the, I'm in for a real long training journey, 40 years plus. Don't be thinking about how you feel for the next few weeks when you've got the rest of your life. Do not stay on cycles year round just because. Let's get into the stuff specifically. Yep. Here, well, let's get into two... When he was running this, these mega cycles also, he says he never drank alcohol, but he did party. Mm -hmm. And when asked, yeah. what do you mean by partying? He said ecstasy. So he yes. was using these party drugs while using these steroids. And this was another reason why he knew well, he was going down the wrong, he was going down the wrong path and he would not get to see his daughter ever graduate. He would not get to see his family in the future so he wanted to make that change it's insane the amount of steroids 
that he admits to taking. And it's crazy the amount of steroids that these guys were using around that late 90s era into the 2000s. That's when really the mega doses were going insane. I would argue at that time, Mobster, you could make the argument guys were running more steroids around 2000 than they are today. I think guys today have realized that running these mega doses is not a long-term strategy. We've we one or two exceptions. We've addressed uh, the Dallas McCarver death cycle. And a well, that's why I'm saying you're you're going to die. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. They realize yeah, you're going yeah, to die at a young age. Up. Yeah, yeah, if yeah, you yeah. do that. So they've realized, yeah. hey, maybe I should only go for three grams yeah, yeah. instead of yeah, yeah. four grams. Two, three grams, not five. It's going to keep me alive yeah. past 26 years yeah, old. So yeah. Let's get into some of his mega cycles. He talks about HGH and insulin, those two together. It's like peanut butter and jelly. You run a ton of HGH, your blood sugar gets affected. You throw in the insulin, your blood uh, blood sugar drops, body goes into storage mode, very, very anabolic in the body. And your body starts storing, 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 storing. So you're able to utilize all this food you're eating. He's eating six to eight meals a day, lots of protein, lots of carbs. The body, that stuff gets sucked into the muscles, guys. Um, that's, it's, that's, that's what you have to do at that level. You have to be able to store, if you're going to get that big, it's just insane how big these guys are, are, we're getting around the 2000. And then the pro bodybuilders are just huge. I mean, you're, you know, his size was just monstrous. If you look at his pictures, he's a huge guy. Another thing, Winstrel, it's a great dryer, 125 milligrams a day. No problem. Maybe even 150. It dries you out ahead of the competition. You got to be dry on competition day. If you're not dry as to the bone, then you're not you're not gonna do well. So you better make sure Anovar. It's another oral, just like Winstrel, 150 milligrams a day. They throw it in. It's a hardener. Masterol, 1,000 milligrams a week. Hardener, great great hardener. You want to use that ahead of your competition. You want to go into the competition hard and dry. If you're not hard and dry and you look fluffy, guess what? You're not going to do well when it comes to the judges. Mobster, get into some of the other injectables that he was running. Tell us a little yeah, bit about again, those. Yeah, again, guys, I, and I touched on it earlier on uh, in terms of him having to manipulate certain things in his training, whether it was carbohydrate, whether it was holding water uh, to bring out the detail that he would want. And especially, as I've mentioned in other podcasts, this idea that you probably want to, and in fact, we say this on the forum as well, sometimes we talk about what's called a trial run. If you're going to compete on stage, you want to know what drugs make you look good, especially if diet and the training is a given. It has to be a given. It doesn't get mentioned enough, but it's a given. You need to know how you're going to respond to these drugs. And by the end of his career, he would know what drugs would be good for him and what drugs would not be good for him. And having that aesthetic dry look that he would want on stage. So when we just talked about the aesthetic stuff in terms of, as you mentioned already, Steve, the master run, equipoise again, uh, he would need to, certain drugs would go in and out in the last two weeks, three weeks before a competition. We, I mean, the, the master on you mentioned was, a, we, we're, we're going to figure out a thousand milligrams a week. And again, it's one of those things that's described as a hardener. Equipoise has been 1,200 milligrams a week. But again, start adding these numbers up, people, because of the drugs that we've already mentioned. Uh, 800 milligrams a week of testosterone. That's probably like the foundation stone for his cycle. Because as a professional bodybuilder, regardless of whatever else he's taking, that's the kind of level you almost want a professional to be on to have that kind of 
retention of muscle. And it was probably on something like this all the damn time. Certainly all the time we was running any kind of cycle for competition. And something else, Steve, I'm thinking especially around that time that they, either they were doing the overseas tours, but I also believe we're talking about King competing three to four times a year. So the times that he might have been off between cycles would have been moderate. Uh, now, what a lot of guys do is they, if, if they can, they qualify for the Mr. Olympia with one competition and then they'll do the Mr. Olympia. I can think of boxers that were fighting each other 12 times a year or more around just towards the end of this time. So the idea of getting smashed in your face 12 times a year versus the idea of competing and dieting down for a competition, it's a lot harder. But in terms of the drugs, you're on constantly. So it, it, it was easy, especially if you hadn't qualified, especially if you hadn't got you know, an invite to the top competition or whatever. So you have to compete again. You had to get your name out there. And then, of course, and Steve talks about this drug all the damn time because it is what bodybuilders do, especially competing bodybuilders, and especially because it works. But obviously, the side effects are something that some people really, really struggle with, and that's trembolone. And again, we're talking about 1,200 milligrams a week here. Now, Steve's touched on it already. Go back to these drugs. I'll tell you what Steve has not mentioned on here. But it was probably two drugs that were rearing their ugly heads around the same time of the 90s bodybuilders and going into the 2000s. One is IGF, which is not really that big of a deal now in terms of it's still out there. Does it work? Doesn't it work? But we don't really see it mentioned a lot with competitive cycles. And the other one, which also really said around the same time, in fact, I could think of one more funny enough. One would be DMP. Uh, 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 and another one which the guys were playing with around this time and it was even kind of a party drug itself but I don't think we're talking about it in regards to King Kamali and that was Nubane. Uh, DMP is an ugly horrible drug we don't recommend it there are ways supposedly running it safely but guys every single person normal genetics that I know that's tried it ends up as fat if not fatter or more watery afterwards so yeah they, they, they lose this weight they look great for five minutes and then boom, your body resets their balance and you come back looking shittier than you started. And so the IGF is one of those drugs that it was one of those, especially at the time, Steve, was it legit? Was the one I'm getting the real deal? It was stupid. I mean, what was it? A thousand dollars a dose or something crazy back then, especially in the early nineties. So there would have been top professional bodybuilders that might have had it, might have used it. I don't think this is a case again with King, literally because of his body type, because of how he responded, because of his dietary manipulation. And I say this, people, and again, you can vary from competition to competition, especially if you compete multiple times a year. And you can even vary in your response because you need, you need the time off of the mega cycles. But if you're competing four times a year, you're kind of on all year round. And there's no way your body's going to respond the same way all year round, you, just because of the effect on your on your endocrine system just because the effects on your liver and your kidneys and everything else so if, if if for example steve he decided he wanted to run 1200 milligrams a week of trend all year round it's going to start off good it's going to get great and it's going to end the year ugly because the stress on your body you're running that for months and months and months and months beyond what you would ever do 20 weeks 25 weeks 24 weeks free competitions Competitions are annoying in so far as that they tend to be at the beginning and the end of the year. There might be a couple in the middle. Arnold Classic always used to throw a lot of the top Olympia guys out by virtue of the fact that you had you didn't have what was enough off time 
and then back on time in terms of your cycle if you did the, the Mr. Olympia. And some of the very, very boss goodies we can mention, Ronnie Coleman's is a good example. The year that they did both the Arnold's and the Olympia, they did great at the Arnold because it was the beginning of the year, but they didn't do as well as they should have done at the Olympia. I, I suspect that uh, King was a guy that could compete more often, but, and I say this because you can go back and look at the photographs from those times, if you pick a year, people, if you go online and say, this is a year that he competed, and you find out he competed three, four times, I'm telling you now, there would be one competition he would be, wow, look at King, he looks great. And the other competitions when he was holding a bit of water or his carbs were off. And it's quite simply, you're standing on too long and the body just won't respond in a perfect way. And so something you can take from other sports, Steve, is this idea of macro stuff where you do, and we've seen this a little bit in more bodybuilding for the 20s, 2020s, which is where you don't quite hit a peak, but qualify with a second or a third place and then go for the big competition with the major peak at the end of the year. So moderate, medium, moderate cycles for those competitions and then a mega cycle for one competition because it's, in, it's, it's impossible to be 100% on all the time and get the same responses all the time. So... He talks about mega cycles. I'd imagine he was talking about really, if he did this all year round, that's why we didn't see a great physique and uh, the best of King throughout parts of the year. But we only saw maybe one in four competitions where he brought it all together and got it signed. What do you think in terms of the running this stuff crazy long and the effect on the body and its response to Well, we've talked about it and there's the studies. Really, the kidneys, your kidneys was just the organs, your organs in your body just cannot handle it, guys. Um, we're seeing the organ enlargement issues, the heart being like two and a half. What was it with Dallas when Carver, like two and a half times normal size? Your liver is, you know, becomes, um, you know, too much pressure on your liver, guys. It's like flushing your toilet and the waste trying to go through the pipes. And when your liver is backed up, the waste can't leave. So the waste ends up backing up into your house. It was the same thing in the body. That waste ends up going. So bodybuilders on the outside you know you think wow these guys are strong they're fit and everything but really on the inside you know they're dying and that's that's the danger so the fact that he got in it was like a hit and run he got in for 12 years abused the shit out of steroids and then came off that was a smart decision on his part because he would not be alive today if he had continued doing three four grams of steroids a week like this and finish off the show mobster i want to hear we have a minute left i want to hear your thoughts because you're He's 50 years old, 49.50 as, as this yep. podcast. He talks about in videos maintenance doses of steroids. I'm curious, your peers who are in their 50s, what does he mean by maintenance dose of steroids in your opinion? And then finish up with our disclaimer. Right, so maintenance dose for me would be, okay, I've spoken to athletes that I know that compete here in the UK. I'm just thinking of my local gym specifically. And again, Right, so if you're a professional bodybuilder, and I don't really think it should apply to amateur bodybuilders. Guys, if you can take time off, do so. Uh, especially if you've got an income from somewhere else. If your income comes from bodybuilding, which makes you professional, even if you haven't got a pro card, but you, you, you make money from bodybuilding by looking good, you make money from bodybuilding with sponsorship and, and, and all that kind of stuff, then you need to look a certain way in order to get some money coming in through the door to pay your bills, right? So let's say you're, you haven't got a pro card or you have, it doesn't really matter. Your majority income, the cash that you produce comes from how you look. For me, if I was a professional bodybuilder, I need to be able to do guest posing. I need to be available for, for photo shoots. 
I need to look a certain way. So I'm going to be running, in my opinion, and I think Steve will probably, this is just me personally, I would probably want to run something around for the majority of the year. It's not TRT. It's not even close to TRT. But probably around a gram total. Now, I suspect there's a lot of guys out there that are probably getting closer to a gram and a half. And this would be a combination of drugs. But again, stuff that Steve's talked about, I believe, which is where we would have shorter active stuff in there that we can take out and put or, 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 or remove longer acting and then run up for a competition and this kind of thing. In other words, we can manipulate our body, drop a few pounds of water, do some fasting, bang, photo shoot at the weekend. I've got, uh, I, I guess, posing at a gym. I don't need to be crazy lean because I'm right there close to most of the guys. That guess posing at a competition, I need to be a bit leaner. And we've seen photographs and videos of people guest posing when they don't look in great shape. Uh, the prop, Again, this really applies to someone that makes a living from bodybuilding. Guys, if your maintenance dose, what you're trying to do to retain us, really it's more of the look than the amount of muscle because no one fucking gets a scale out on stage and puts you on it. So you should get your head around the fact that you're going to lose some weight. But if you look good and no one's weighing you in the gym when you're doing a guest posing, that's all that matters. We've seen guys guess posing when they look fat as fuck. I'm thinking of a just one, the Mr. Olympia, Sean Roden, coming on stage three to four months before the accusations that he had before the next Mr. Olympia, and he did not look good at all. Big as a house, sure. We've seen Jay Cutler look like that. We've seen a few others. These guys are probably staying on year round, the wrong kind of drugs, let themselves get out of shape. And it doesn't, it, it, to me, it's kind of, if I've paid $100 to go and watch a show, I want to see someone that's in shape, and I don't mean it for pairs. If I know that this fella's coming who's a top professional bodybuilder or even a middle-range professional bodybuilder with real good look and he turns up looking like a sloppy sack of shit, I'm kind of insulted. Uh, maybe it's good for their health, but hmm, again, you're making, you're making money from how you look, especially if you're, for example, some kind of male model. So a maintenance dose is really, it's about retaining muscle tissue. But for me, I think it'd be more about how you look because ideally you want guys, if you must, we're looking at TRT levels, which is a lot, lot less. So again, most of you guys need to get your brain around the fact that simply you don't need to be on a thousand, you don't need to be on 1500 milligrams all year round. What do you think, Steve? I can think of a few people that we know that are doing this right now. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, I was being kind of, you know, facetious, you know, bringing that up because to him, to the former pro bodybuilder like him at his size, uh, maintenance dose would be, like you said, 500 milligrams or a, a gram a week, which is still abuse, but it's not as bad as three or four grams a week. But really, you know, you should be on a TRT dose, which is about a hundred milligrams a week of uh, of testosterone if you're if you're using testosterone. You know, so it's that's that's a true TRT dose. But in his situation, he's likely on five hundred milligrams or a thousand milligrams. So it is still abuse, but it's just not as bad as two two or three grams. It, so. Yeah, so finish off on the disclaimer, Mobster. It was a great show. As if a disclaimer, guys, as always, we're not doctors, and the opinions that we put in this podcast are hours and hours alone. It's our view, and it's based on our years of experience and views on the topic. Our podcasts are for informational and educational purposes only. And as always, the First Amendment rule applies for the, and the freedom of speech. Thank you very much. <laughs>